All right, as I get ready up here, uh, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, everyone's found that okay? Why don't we stand and read verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace towards me, I did not prove, his, it did not prove to be in vain." But I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are all of men most to be pitied. Please be seated. Well, Genesis House, uh, welcome back to what will be our final sermon in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. When I was thinking about the last sermon I wanted to do in this letter, I was thinking, what would be the most important or appropriate topic to end on, since there was so much in the letter we didn't cover? But I thought it would be a mistake to not conclude the series without speaking about one of the most fundamental truths concerning the Christian faith, and that's the importance of the resurrection. Now, I don't know how much you've thought about the importance of the resurrection, or you just sort of take it for granted, but it's absolutely foundational to the faith. Notice what Paul says at the end. I mean, he, well, he makes many implications, but one of the key ones here is that you are still in your sins, and your faith is worthless. The whole message of, the, of Christianity is founded upon the, the reality of the resurrection, I say this because if for whatever reason you see on a National Geographic cover or on the news, someone claiming to found the bones of Jesus and people are celebrating, know that uh, that is something that is going to be the worst news of your life. Finding the bones of Jesus is not something you want to hear. So we want to talk about now the importance of the resurrection. So before I go any discussion or go any further here, let's define what the resurrection is. The definition of resurrection in Greek is a raising or a rising up into a state of higher advancement and blessedness. So here's the point we don't want to miss as believers, though. It's not simply the, the soul we're talking about here. The, the soul is not the only thing that goes into a state of higher blessedness or higher advancement. It's actually the body. The key here for the Corinthians is the body. This becomes evident in verse 35, 
when Paul is talking to them and he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? So he's trying to convince the Corinthians it's a bodily resurrection and it's not just about the spirit. Now, this is true for the unbeliever as well as the believer. In John 5.28, Jesus is in discussion with um, some of the Jews that are against him. And he says, uh, there's going to be a resurrection for the unbeliever and the believer in the time of and when it's the second coming of Christ when he comes in judgment. So again, both whether you stand in favor of God or not, both receive a bodily resurrection. That's something quite something to think about. The problem in Corinth, of course, was found in verse 12. Some were denying bodily resurrection. Look at me with verse 12. He says, if Christ was preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it's not all of Corinth. The church is split. Maybe it's half and half or 30 to 70%, whatever. But there are people in Corinth saying the resurrection is not real. It can't happen. The body won't rise to, the, to be with God in glory. Now, this is uh, pretty fundamental in terms of an error that Paul needs to address. Because what the Corinthians didn't realize is the implications of making such a claim. Now, the question I was thinking about is, why didn't they believe in bodily resurrection? Well, we don't know. Paul never tells us. There's no additional information given. But perhaps they're like Thomas, one of the disciples. When he was told that Jesus was resurrected, he said, not in your life. I don't believe a single moment of that. That's impossible. And many people like that are today. Because resurrection of the body actually defies all logic, doesn't it? It it defies the laws that God put in place that govern nature. I mean, it's not. I've never been to a funeral, and probably neither of you, where you've seen someone in a coffin or cremated and seen them walking around one week one week later on the street. Resurrection isn't exactly something that people see on a regular basis. So yeah, again, it could be just that they just thought this is illogical, but I want to suggest one other possibility to you, and it comes from um, uh, sort of my learning in seminary over the last couple of years and sort of my studies in the commentaries. In the Greco-Roman culture, they had a belief in something called dualism. And dualism. The, the idea of dualism was this, that everything spiritual was good, whereas everything physical, such as our bodies, was bad. Everything in the physical world was intrinsically evil, but the spirit was good. And so the idea of a, of a corpse that was decaying and detestable to them being eternally resurrected was therefore strongly to be rejected because the body wasn't important to God. Only the soul and the spirit was. Now we get a glimpse of this in Acts 17, actually, guys. In Acts 17, Paul has just debated Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are Greco-Roman philosophers. And he's just debated them. And Paul has now come up and made the, co- the comment that, that, that Jesus will resurrect us, that there'll be a resurrected body. And listen to the response of these, of these people when they heard this. After they heard Paul preach about the resurrection from the dead, some began to sneer. Now, is it because they just thought it divided all laws, laws of logic? Maybe. But perhaps it had to do with their philosophy in terms of what they believed about the afterlife and about the material world being evil. 
But you know what, church, this is also probably why the Corinthians got into trouble like sexually on a regular basis and did things when we read, the, we read what are you doing here, guys? Because again, if you believe the body's bad and intrinsically evil and God doesn't care about it, you, and all he cares about is your spirit, you have, you have a license in how you want to live your life here in this world because only God cares about your spirit. So it gives you this per- permission to do things in your own mindset. That's why the whole teaching on your body is the temple of the Lord. Do you not know that? They don't know that. Because the Greco-Roman philosophy is your body matters nothing to God. Okay, now that's just a suggestion. I don't know if that's what actually was going on in Corinth or not, but you take it or leave it. But we know this for sure. Corinth, some in Corinth denied bodily resurrection, and Paul had to correct it. So the first thing Paul does is he reminds them of the gospel that they first heard from him in which they heard him preach and believed. We pick this up in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are being saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul starts off here by reminding them of the first time he kind of showed up in their in their city, and preach the gospel. He says, not only have you, did you receive this message, and are you currently standing upon it, and you are being saved by it, this, like, you, you've already gone to, come to this place where you believe this message. And so Paul's really saying this, what I want to share with you again in terms of the gospel is not a new message to you. And at some point in the past, remember, I taught you about resurrection. At some point in the past, you believed it, you received it, you actually stood on that. And so he says, this is not a new message, just go back to what I preached to you before. And again, of central importance is the belief in the resurrection. Now, for Paul, it's all about evidence. It's all about evidence. He's going to give theological reasons as to why the resurrection is important. But before he does that, he starts off with evidence in terms of being, having two witnesses to prove resurrection. Two witnesses. So picture you're in the court, in court, and uh, it's your time to come before the judge. And you're going to present your witnesses. The first witness for Paul is the scriptures. The scriptures testified to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Read three and four with me. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see that? According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, two times spoke of death and resurrection. He says here, the gospel is presented here, Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. These are three simple truths with profound implication. So Paul was reminding the Corinthians here that this was something he didn't dream up. Resurrection wasn't something he dreamt up and was just trying to like, fool them or to to play games with them. This is what God had planned and predicted long before resurrection ever happened. This resurrection was a fulfillment of God's word. Now, he doesn't give us the Old Testament scriptures he's thinking of in terms of Christ dying for our sins and being buried and raised. So let's just take a look at where he could have been thinking when he went. So consider the comment that Christ died for our sins. Consider that comment. Where in the Bible does he talk about that? 
Isaiah 53. Look at verse 6. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Verse 8. That he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. Verse 11. He will bear their iniquities. And verse 12. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. Isaiah's point, Jesus died for sin. But not for his own sin, he died for our sin, according to the scriptures. How about this idea of being buried and raised? Buried and raised. Let's look at Psalm 1610. In Psalm 1610, David said this, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, for nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You will make known to me the path of life. You, are not, you will not let your Holy One, Jesus, see decay. He's buried, but you will not let him see decay. He is the path to life. I think it's important here to talk about this gospel message. When Paul says that Christ died for our sins, in order to be forgiven of our sins, we have to believe that we have sinned. (laughs) You have to come to that place where you believe it. And you also have to believe that he did something about it. That he died as a substitute for your sin. Now, I think this is really important in terms of sharing your faith. Because we can get so caught up in like all the ways that we can get sort of caught up in the confusion of speaking to different people, groups, and different peoples, and it becomes overwhelming. I mean, there's apologetic schools to learn how to defend your faith. At the very simplest core, church, at the very simplest core, we just have to tell people that we believe in Jesus Christ because he died for our sins as a substitute so that whoever believes in him can have eternal life. That is the basic message. The key will be helping people see that they have sinned and helping them understand that. I met a fellow the other day, and we were talking, and uh, I just, uh, you know, instead of getting into like a list of what sin is, I basically said to him, listen, you know, all of us have sinned, and I, th- I said, you would agree with me, I said, if you put all of your life on a movie screen, all of your life on a movie screen, and you were going to hit play, would you invite your friends and your family in to watch that movie? And he said, absolutely not. I said, exactly, so we all have sinned. No one would hit play on that movie screen. Not one person. All of us us have secrets that we'll go to the grave with. How about this idea of being buried, though, and being raised? The reason why Paul brings this up is he just basically wants to leave no other room for any option than Jesus having died a real death. He wasn't in a coma. He wasn't unconscious. I mean, the Romans knew how to kill people, church. What an insult to a Roman soldier if you just thought that uh, they couldn't do their job. They knew how to kill people. And of course, the resurrection is key here. He was raised on the third day. This is bodily. This is bodily. We know this because he said to Thomas, when he saw Thomas, he says, touch me. Touch me. And when they're on the beach in Galilee, they were barbecuing fish and eating it together. So this is fundamental. So Paul says, you go back to the scriptures. 
you go back to the scriptures and remember what God said about resurrection. The second witness, though, was people. His second defense was those who saw the resurrected Jesus, eyewitnesses. We see this in verses 5 through 8. He says, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born. He appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not, not, yet, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. A couple observations on these witness lists. Number one here is the large amount of people. Paul lists an excess of over 500 people. An excess of over 500 people. So this is not dealing with one or two. Like if you want to fabricate a story, if you want to fabricate it, just have one or two just come and talk about it and, and make the masses like unknown. But to have over 500 gives it credibility. One thing to call one person insane or crazy, another thing to call over 500 people insane and crazy all at the same time. So there's a huge amount of people that saw it. Number two, the varied amount, the, very, the varied amount in terms of relationship to Jesus. He lists Peter here, Cephas, that was his best friend. He lists the 12, which were his closest friends outside of Peter. He lists one of his relatives, his brother James. But he also lists his worst enemy, who was Paul. So I want to just sort of focus on two names here, James and Paul. Why are James and Paul important as eyewitnesses? Well, again, if you're going to make a story that's pl that seems plausible, you want to have witnesses that are favor you and appreciate you and would uh, be, uh, want to promote your life and your story. These two men couldn't care less about Jesus early on. James, throughout his life, growing up with his brother, denied that his brother was the Messiah. It must have been a really tough family to be raised in when your parents were always correcting uh, you and never your brother. <laughs> And then you go to uh, the synagogue and your brother would ace you in uh, all the scriptures and you hadn't a clue. Must have been a pretty interesting thing. But anyway, James denied him through his lifetime. In John chapter 7, we see him actually taunting Jesus to go to Jerusalem to show himself and all his miracles. Because he says someone like you wouldn't do these things in secret. But later on, we see him coming to faith in his own brother, believing that he's God. What changed? The resurrection. Seeing him raised. But Paul's another important one. Like James, he was a denier of the Messiah, but to a whole new level. He's one who would rip you out of your home, torture you, throw you in jail, take your life because of your proclamation that Jesus was resurrected. Because of your proclamation that Jesus was resurrected, he would take your life and make your life a living hell on this earth. So if anyone was going to not admit to the resurrection, it would be him. So for him to come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, he would have had to eat a lot of crow. 
But again, the resurrection changed everything. Finally, what I like about this list is that many of the witnesses were still alive. Did you pick that up in these verses here? He says, many of of them in verse 6 remain until now. So here's what he's saying to Corinth. If you don't believe me, travel to Jerusalem. You can still interview and consult with many of the people that saw the risen Christ. If there was Facebook back then, you could quickly message them and say, hey, we heard you saw Jesus. Is that true? And they respond and say, absolutely. Absolutely. Before we move on, though, to the uh, theological reasons for why the, the necessity of the resurrection, I want to speak to those of you in the church that feel like a failure right now. Those of you in the church that feel like a failure, like your life doesn't matter, like you have nothing to offer God. Kind of people that say, well, God would never accept me, love me. I'm pretty much just going through life doing nothing. Paul had a rap sheet that was quite incredible. He'd murdered people. He tortured people. He ripped families apart. And yet God still used him mightily for a purpose. You know what's amazing here? He calls himself one untimely born. Do you know what that means in Greek? Untimely born? An abortion. A miscarriage. Paul calls himself a miscarriage, an abortion. That's what he calls himself because of his persecution of the church. But then he says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. (laughs) By the grace of God, I am what I am. I don't know where you're at in church right now, Lord, or we are (laughs) in church right now, people. But if, he could, if Christ could redeem and use a murderer, a torturer, who destroyed families and went after the Christian people, I'm pretty sure your rap sheet is, can be covered by the cross of Christ. And his grace is sufficient enough for you to redeem that which is lost and to use you for his glory and for his service. So may that encourage you <laughs> this morning. So Paul then provided evidence in defense of the Corinthians' rejection of the resurrection, the scriptures, and the eyewitnesses. So if the Corinthians are going to fight against the idea of resurrection, they're up against some pretty tough odds. They got to deny the authority of God's word, and they got to deny the over 500 people that say otherwise. But of central importance to Paul is the theological implications to Corinthians if they deny the resurrection. You see, for Paul, it's not a small error. It's not a small error. It's massive in implication. So let's look at it. Verse 12. If Christ has preached that he is not, has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact he did raise, if the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. 
If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all of men to be most pitied. Paul lists seven disastrous implications, seven disastrous implications by the resurrection not happening. Oh. Here they are on the, on the board. First of all, if, if uh, believers aren't, if the resurrection didn't happen and believers aren't raised, then Christ did not rise. In other words, there's no savior. <laughs> there's no savior if Christ didn't rise. We're, that's to deny the central figure that Christianity is built upon. Number two, their preaching is pointless. I have wasted my life standing up before you for the last eight years. And all of my evangelism is completely of no point. It's meaningless without the resurrection. Meaningless. You coming here to listen is also meaningless. You could have stayed home, slept in, had a good breakfast, whatever. Faith in Jesus is meaningless. There's no hope if without the resurrection. For Paul and the apostles, they're guilty of lying about what God did. They're false witnesses because they're proclaiming that, uh, or that God, had, well, God had said that he was going to raise Jesus. And so if they're proclaiming that and it didn't actually happen, then they're liars. And they're making God look out to be a liar. In verse 17, believers are still in their sins. In other words, they're unforgiven. There's no hope of eternal life for those who are already dead in Christ. Those who died before us who are still alive will not go to glory. And Christians are pitiful people in verse 19. Pitiful people. Why? Why are all these realities if the resurrection doesn't happen? If you've been sleeping in this service so far, this is the time just to wake up for two and a half minutes to hear this last point. Why is the resurrection so important? In Romans 6.23, it says this, For the wages of sin is death. You want to know why you die bodily? Because of sin. How then would you have eternal life bodily? By being sinless. Right? You'd have to be sinless. So, we go to Romans 6.23, it says, why do we die? For the wages of sin is death. If Jesus hadn't been raised, that would have demonstrated that he himself was a sinner. Understand? If the wages of sin is death, if Jesus does not rise from the grave, it shows that he had sin in his life. If he has sin in his life, therefore he cannot no, he can no longer be a substitute for us, for our sin. Because we have a sinner representing a sinner. So he has to be sinless. So if, if he doesn't resurrect, it shows that he has sin and death wins. Death wins. And on judgment day, we stand before God with a report card of our lives open before him. And we'd be judged guilty. But in this marvelous verse that parallels 1 Corinthians 15 verse 2, verse 3, where he says here that he died for our sins, Paul says it this way later on, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We might become the righteousness of God. 
He died in our place and bore our judgment. And so I want to give you an illustration right now of what this looks like if you're more visual and less auditory and understanding. Denise, can you come up? Every one of us have sinned. Every one of us have sinned. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So, as a, as a, as a person, any, every human being goes to the grave. At 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe if you're lucky, 102. Maybe that's called unlucky if you live to 102, I don't know. But uh, you go to the grave. So, so bodily, here's what happens to us because of sin. I go down into the ground. I'm dead. My body can't rise without help. Christ, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, goes to the cross bodily. He dies for sin, but not for his own, for me. So he gets put in the grave, but he can't stay there because he did nothing wrong. So he, he rises from the grave. And so when the offer of the gospel comes to me that, that Jesus has died sinless to forgive me, he offers me salvation. He says, I can deal with your sin. I can deal with it. I bore the penalty on the cross for you. And he offers me his gift of grace. And I take it. And he lifts me out of the grave because of what he's done. Understand? I grab on Jesus' coattails, so to speak. And when he rises, I rise to be with him. If, he's, if, he's not a, if he doesn't rise from the dead, I don't rise from the dead, and neither do you. And so your life is to be pitied, is a complete joke. You're wasting your time being here, and so am I. Amen. You can see now why Paul is so adamant to correct the Corinthians' thinking. If their present position prevails, the Corinthians have absolutely no hope in this lifetime or the next. And neither do we. So when is this going to happen? Verse 23. Read it with me for fun to end. Actually, verse 20, yeah, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and the Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. When does the resurrection happen? At the second coming of Jesus Christ. And then comes the end. And he'll establish his kingdom. This is why the Bible tells us to be ready and to be praying for his return. That is one of the things that we are, we are asked to pray for is the Lord's return so that we can be with him. So we look forward to that day. So a couple lessons. I could have written four or five, but I made it very simple and just made two. Number one, the resurrection of Jesus is absolutely foundational to the Christian faith. 
The unrisen Christ would mean the end of Christianity. There'd be no substitute for sin. On judgment day, you'd be held accountable for what you've done, and all of us would be guilty. And we'd be the most pitied people in this earth at this present moment. And there'd be no hope of eternal life. Number two. There is no past life of sin that Jesus can't redeem and use for his glory. There's no past life of sin that Jesus can't redeem and use for his glory. Paul, the abortion. Paul, the miscarriage. But by the grace of God, he is what he is. And so we have a choice to make. In Galatians 2.20, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. But it's no longer I that live, but that he that lives in me. So we die to ourselves. We die to ourselves, receive his forgiveness, and we serve him with all of our lives by his power and his grace. I love this lesson. I just love this lesson because this is, this is just the hope, the hope for all of us. Okay, well, let's close in prayer. Lord, I give you thanks for the morning. Thanks for the day. Thank you for Paul's teaching to us and how profound it really is. I know in my past, I had never really thought through all the implications of you not rising, but I'm, I'm grateful now for the understanding. And I pray, Lord, that this will not only um, be just informational to the church here today and our family here, that it would be transformal, transformational in terms of how it uh, moves us into the reality of life. As I, remember, I was reminded of on my holidays at Theodos Island this week, Either the, either the Bible and the gospel is true or it's not. It's either true or it's not. There's, like, there's, there's no middle ground. It's either 100% accurate or it's zero. So help us to live like it's 100% true. Sometimes we live like, we're have, like we don't know if it's true and we have these doubts. Remove all doubts, Lord, and just may something like this sermon here be uh, convincing enough to us, Lord, to just move us even, even more committed to you, God. So we look forward to the work you're going to do at Genesis House and from now till in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.